My guest in the late show library is a man who just about deserves a library of his own, to be honest, with the amount of uh, books that he's written over the years. Uh, a prodigious writing talent is Roland Perry, who joins me uh, to talk about his latest book, Tea and Scotch with Brevin. Hello, Roland. How are you going? I'm going well, Kevin. Very well, thank you. Are your fingers actually attached permanently to your computer keyboard? or? <laughs> yeah. You you sound like a, a policewoman I was riding a bike next to in a gym about 20 years ago, and she said, do you ever get outside? Do you have a life? She said. <laughs> she liked the outdoors life. And uh, she, she said, I, it made me think, because I do have the blinds down and the sun uh, blocked, and I concentrate. I have music on and all that stuff. But it is a, it's a good question. And one of the reasons I've jumped to a forward base in, in Thailand for nearly half the year is because of many reasons, but it... It, it gives me a fresh perspective in a different culture and allows me to get out more. Yeah. There you go. 30, 35 books. Uh, the, the the one we're going to talk to you about predominantly is Tea and Scotch with Bradman, the, the latest that you've written. Uh, it, it, obviously, uh, does the writing come easy to you? Well, it does come a lot easier than it did. It's second nature now. You still have to craft and think and redraft. And uh, part of the business is knowing where you're can improve what you've done in, in a redraft and looking at coldly. But I, look, it, it's a lot easier than the first one where I couldn't write and that people might say, oh, he's being, you know, he's being falsely modest. But I really couldn't. And it was a, it was an international bestseller. It was a thriller yep. and called Program for a Puppet. And I really didn't know what I was doing. And it takes about four books for most professional authors who do books to get a voice and get a confidence in what you're doing. So um, it's a good question, and I feel much more comfortable with it now, of yeah. course. This one was, uh, was this one, uh, as much as anything, a labour of love? Very much. In fact, I didn't plan to do it at all. I thought the Bradman stories were, there were a couple more I thought of doing, but because I don't think body line's been covered in the way it should be, uh, right back to when it started and when it finished dramatically, for example, but I, I really had no plan to do another Bradman book. I'd done the biography. That was nearly 300,000 words, so I'd done that 25 years ago. But a very astute publisher, Jude McGee from ABC Books, rang and said, have you ever thought of a memoir? And I rejected it at first, and then she rang back and said, look, it's totally different from a biography. You've got to insert yourself into it. How you fans the man? You had six years with him. Um, you know, we want the inside impressions of him because he's not known other than the statistic, yeah. 99.94. That was a fair comment, and it, it got me thinking, and I decided to do it. And I'm very glad I did because I've never done a memoir as such. I come out of the old school, uh, Kevin, where you did not insert yourself into the story. You tried very hard to look objective, yeah. and uh, they don't do that now. It's the me generation, and you you get into it as much as you can. I don't agree with that, but this is a one-off, and I enjoyed it a lot. I was going to say, did did you enjoy that experience? Because it is it is quite uh, it's quite confronting in some ways. Yeah, well, you have to be you have to be brutally honest at times. I mean, it wasn't all peaches and cream with Bradman. It was there were a few abrasive moments. I've got to say, he could be um, quite strong and tough with you. But look, he was never unfair in those few moments where we had some sort of confrontation over an issue, um, he was always fair. He would try to, you know, muscle you into not doing something or <laughs> saying something. But, he, I mean, for example, I wanted to do um, an article on Packer and meeting him. And I said, look, you're the greatest Australian next to Monash. He's the richest ex-Murdoch who's an American anyway. I want to do a, I'd love to do an article on when you met. 
over the um, over well a lot of things. But anyway, it was met the second time in ninety five, ninety six it was, and um, he said, "Well, I'm not going to tell you." Uh, and Packer's not going to talk. How are you going to get it? And then he said, he, he got that sort of voice going, and he said, well, you're not going to be like that Indian, are you? He sent me a one-page article on me uh, that he made up completely. No, he didn't speak to me. And he said, I, and then he paused in typical Bradman fashion. He said, some of my responses were terrific, I've got to say. <laughs> <laughs> and the bloke had made it up. Anyway, the phone rang at that moment. This is just an amazing little run of events. And it was my mobile, and I quickly dismissed it, got back on the phone to him, and he said, how many phones have you got? <laughs> making me sound like I had a bank of phones there. You know, it was very fun. I laughed at that, and he chilled. I know he was laughing himself. He had that. Caustic wit, it was quite strong, uh, acerbic at times, but I really enjoyed it because it, it was too edged often. You know, he left a few casualties in any of his wit sometimes, you know, when, when he'd said something. The class, you want the classic example? I mean, it wasn't yeah. with me. I, I had some funny. The classic example was um, Viv Richards took him into the West Indian dressing room after a draw in the fourth test in 1989. They'd thrashed us, and Patrick Patterson had been brutal with us. You might recall that. Yeah. Dean Jones got a double hundred in this game. And Merv Hughes, who could bat just a bit, he was really the bowler. He'd never got it anywhere as an all-rounder or a batsman. But anyway, he tagged along with them. They just made their big scores. They came off, and they went in behind Bradman. So Bradman's introduced along the line to the West Indians. He comes with a seven-foot-plus, you know, 200-centimetre-plus Patrick Patterson. He looks down at Bradman, who's about 165 centimetres. He says, you declare down, Bradman. You're just a little guy. I get you out. No problem. <laughs> Bradman looked up at him. Bradman looked up and said, get me out. How are you going to get me out? You couldn't even get my views out. <laughs> so, oh, so, I mean, the whole of the West Indian team were laughing. Hughes was very down on the comment and <laughs> Patterson looked like a fool. He'd just been... And I I say in the book, I don't know whether I say in the book, but I'm telling you now, that moment, Patrick Patterson would not have realised he was, it was like bowling to Bradman. Yeah. You know, it's exactly, he was very quick on his feet with his brain. And I encountered this many, many times. And I, you do understand what it was like to bowl to him. You really do, because he was so quick, so fast in his thinking, and the feet would be moving with his brain if he was on the pitch. Yeah. Uh, not, not dissimilar to a lot of conversations that are being had currently about Stephen Smith. Yeah, well, that's, that's true. I mean, I like the way Smith has ripped up the orthodox rule book. Uh, like Brappen did early in his career and was pummeled for it, but he never changed. He was unorthodox. Smith's taken it to a new dimension, you know, mm. the French cricket almost, and uh, you see him even the 2020 now playing those shots uh, to the boundary um, over the keeper. Terrific to watch. He's going to be a huge draw card, similar to Bradman. I mean, you couldn't get into club games when Bradman was playing in the 30s. Yeah. There'd be three or 4,000 people outside the ground wanting to get in. Same with shield games, same with tests. Uh, Steph, uh, Steve Smith really adds that dimension that we've needed from a cricketer. We've had some great cricketers. You think of Ponting and Border and all these players and, and Mark War, but there's a, just an ec extra edge to Steve. And he showed fabulous courage. Um, I was there for the Ashes a few months ago. 
I was uh, at the Lord's ground on a grubby, grey winter's day almost in England when he got felled by Joffre Archer and then came back and made a double hundred and that showed courage of the highest order yeah. to come back knowing you're going to be, you know, you make a split second, it's, it's, it's really a tenth of a second misjudgment and you could be dead. I mean, that's what it virtually amounts to. Yeah. Bradman was similar um, in... Uh, 1934, he got peritonitis, didn't know he had it. His appendix was leaking poison through his body. He'd lost a lot of weight. And he made 304 in a match they had to win. And he hit fours. I think he hit 20, 20 or 30 fours and didn't run as much because he didn't have the energy. Yeah. Uh, and and then, he, uh, then he had to be rushed to hospital soon after that. And the King of England was informed that Bradman was, was, was dying and was going to go. And they were asking for blood from the hospital to be rushed to him. It was a public announcement about could certain blood type be sent to the hospital. But he survived. And it's a similar level of mental courage. You're just going to get out there and do it for your country. And they both have that same attitude. Yeah, Absolutely. Uh, I mean, you're obviously an unabashed cricket fan. We know that from uh, from your previous works. Uh, yes. Was it hard uh, being uh, being such a cricket fan and obviously such a Bradman fan from your works that we we know that from uh, the works you'd done previously to to yes. to find that line between fan and and uh, you know uh, inserting yourself into the into the story and and being part of that? Yeah, well, it wasn't a, it wasn't an issue, Kevin, because I had those six years with him, so. Fan and comprehension of his greatness before you go in, uh, then you're on the job. Just like you are talking to me now, if you had Bravin on the line, you'd, you wouldn't be awed. You'd be thinking, well, I'm going to ask a series of questions and I'm going to ask tough ones and that's it. Um, it was easy when you, it's much easier when you had a lot of time. For example, he wanted me to come over. It was face to face often in that yep. time. I think about a dozen times I flew over there from Melbourne to Adelaide. But, I, but he uh, said, look, he wanted me to come over for certain things like the 48 tour. He didn't have to say to me then, I, this is the, my, the, the tour that means most to me. So I'd go over and have a day or two with him. And then I wanted body line, so it would be a day or two. So you weren't really – it was mechanics in a yeah. way. I wasn't – I was over it. And he characterised it after a couple of years. He said, you're not a mate? He said, you're a good friend. And I remember <laughs> saying to him, that's good enough for me, Don. I said, you know. Yeah. But we did, you know. So it kept – it's a, it is a, an awkward one when you really do admire the person. I mean, I, I went in admiring what he'd done, and then when I got to know him, I just admired him ten times more. You know, the the fact that he couldn't be bought when three people – I was in the study and he's upstairs of his house – when three people from networks asked, offered him a million dollars plus to appear for 10 to 20 minutes on television, and he knocked them all back out of hand. And the funniest one was not one I witnessed, but he told me. And by the way, there's another side to him. He, he was a mimic. Apparently the Queen is a bit of a mimic as well. Well, right. you, you don't expect it, but, you, you know, so that you imagine the Queen meeting so many dignitaries all around the world and she'd probably take the mickey out of meeting some of them. Bradman was very – he could, he did it about five times for me, he did other people, and the one was Bob Hawke. And he told me Hawkey rang up. So it was nasally uh, Bob being taken off by high piping Don. Uh, right. So Don, Don said, "Hey, yes, well, he offered me uh, six hundred thousand, and then we have a little chat on our families." And he said, uh, "And this is now Don talking about 
Bobby said, oh, look, I'll tell you what I'll do, Don. I'll offer you 400,000 more. So I'll bring it up to a million uh, for the interview. It was with Channel 9 when he was he had that brief aborted period as an interviewer for Channel 9. You yeah. might remember just after he, he lost uh, the prime ministership. Do you remember that? Yeah, I do. And uh, so there's Preventer, and he, and he said, I just said no. And I you know, I thought it was hilarious that he'd, he'd knocked back Bob. He got on with... Um, he got on with Menzies, of course, definitely with Keating and Hawke and Howard. And I think, you know, without him saying it, he had a, a, a high regard for the way Keating and Hawke handled the economy, uh, particularly Keating. He'd be on the phone to him, talking to about the economy, because Brabham had an expert on expertise on everything to do with finance and the economy. And, of course, John Howard would have consulted him too. So, it, you know, he was. He, that's one of the reasons all of them have said from 1930 on, he's the greatest Australian. Um, except, for, I don't know what Gillard thought. Um, I don't know what uh, you know Rudd would have thought and the current Prime Minister, because they may not have had the contact with him. But everyone up until Howard, and that's covering 70 years, every Prime Minister said he was the greatest Australian. They, I don't happen to I don't happen to agree with it. I think Monash was, but I understand why they go for. It's it's probably surprising in many ways that uh, I mean I'm sure he was headhunted by the politicians at some stage to do something, but he had an incredible ear to the to the people that, and the powerful people in the country, didn't he? Oh, enormously so. I mean, I was amazed at some of the stuff. Yeah, you're sitting with this little old octogenarian, and then he'll tell you a story. Uh, but on that point, I'll come to the, the apartheid business, which yeah. was amazing. I dug into that, but the the, the Reserve Bank, he would write to the Reserve Bank Governor with suggestions, gratuitous comments, and if the Reserve Bank Governor did not write back, he didn't have to phone, Bradmore would be on the phone to the Prime Minister of the day to make sure <laughs> that the Governor rang, rang or wrote to him. Wow. And it happened... It happened quicker than email, let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> that was what I loved about him. You know, he pulled that power for the right reasons. Um, way back in the mid-60s, blacks weren't allowed into the country. You just couldn't get in. I mean, you'd have to fight and scramble if you're an Indian or a West Indian or whatever. He told Menzies he wanted Gary Sobers to play for South Australia and Kensington, his club, and that was it. And Menzies allowed... Gary Sobers in. It was kept very quiet, but that was what happened. That was our white Australia it, policy back in that day. Yeah, shockingly so yeah. But for us, but that was the way it was. And, yep. you know, there are reasons for it, the roots at Federation and all that stuff. And But Bradman sort of overrode that, and he just admired Sobers so much. Um, the apartheid story is the classic in terms of his integrity, because remember you're dealing, well, I was dealing with, a very conservative figure. I mean, a cricket administrator and a stockbroker for 20 years. Yep. So you can't get more conservative than that unless you throw in undertakers and bankers. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So here's Bradman, and his son was in his ear, and Rowan Rivette, a top journalist who was a close friend, whom he advised on stocks and shares, uh, was in his ear about doing something about it. And it, this is 1970 when... 75% of Australians were polled and said, look, we shouldn't interfere in other people's politics, i.e. apartheid in South Africa. Bradman uh, was in that 75%, like obviously three-quarters of the country. And he, um, as I say, badgered by several people, but particularly Rowan Rivette, 
and there's correspondence in the National Library on this, which is blindingly brilliant. I went up there and read it, and it was as soon as it was placed there by the family, by Rivette's family. And then you had John at, at home, and John was a left winger, and he was into him as well. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to know what he did. Well, he said, look, I flew to South Africa because he wanted to know himself. This is Don. This is Bradman, the man with integrity. So he flew to South Africa and met with John Vorster. Anyone out there, and there'll be a lot of South Africans who know this, Vorster was um, a fascist before, during, and after the war. Yep. He was pro-Hitler before, during, and after Hitler's death. So you can imagine his politics. Yep. And Bradman's first question, first question, was, why don't you choose blacks in the team? Then he took off Forster for me, and he said, Forster then replied, uh, you know, Sir Donald, they're intellectually and physically inferior when it comes to the game of cricket. They can handle rugby, but they can't do the cricket. And Bravin then quickly, as ever, cut him to shreds for the next comment. He said, have you ever heard of Gary Sobers? And he reeled off the West Indian cricket team, oh, wow. all black. Bar one. And you can imagine the feeling from uh, Vorster, who was a brutal guy, but he was really frightened of Bradman. And I know that from a guy called Doc Milan, whom I interviewed years ago. Sorry, I didn't interview him. I chatted with him at length in in, in London about this. And that's why I had it in the back of my mind. I'd come up someday and I tackled Bradman about it. But Milan said he'd never seen the brutally tough Vorster so frightened of anyone coming to the door, you know, and, uh, uh, and that was Bradman. Then he flew, this is the other part, this is amazing. he then flew to London to talk to, I said to him, to Bradman, oh, you went and saw the head of the MCC. And he said, why would I bother with the head of the MCC? Huh. Not bombastically, not at all. He was just thinking on another plane. He said, I wouldn't bother with him. I went and saw uh, Heath and Wilson, the Prime Minister's above the problem at the time. <laughs> And the problem was Dolivera, Basil Dolivera, yeah. who was a Cape coloured, as they called them, was chosen for England and they were going to tour South Africa and Vorster rejected it. That's how it all began. And then he came back with his information from the two prime ministers and his experience with Vorster and just made that fantastic one-line statement. Uh, we will not play South Africa again until they choose a team on a non-racial basis. And the media was there. I was on the age at the time. I wasn't at the meeting, but uh, Peter McFarlane, a great sports journalist, was there. I remember him coming back into the into the age office and throwing his folder on the desk and saying, "Bloody Bradman!" And I <laughs> turned around and said, "What's wrong?" And he said, "He just made this statement." And there were no. And he repeated the statement. He said, "No questions." He just walked, got back on his heel, and walked back into the, uh, the cricket Australia as it is now. You know, so. Yeah. Um, that was him, and that's why that's integrity. But what that's what th- I mean. I mean, knocking back, it couldn't be bought, which is yeah. a sign. Uh, and then it went right down to the pedantic. So, um, you know, he would um, send back ungrammatical letters from uh, Cricket Australia, as it is now, uh, send back ungrammatical le- letters with the letters with the grammar corrected in the margin, yeah. right? <laughs> so he went, he was, inte- his integrity ran. So getting to the bedrock truth on everything, even the subheading and the biography for me, and I can't remember what it was now, something like you know, exclusive interviews with, I had to send him. I mean, he, you know, he didn't dictate to me. He said, look, could you send me six ideas for that? Even though he, he had no say over the changing the editorial. 
and we had to go through them one by one. He said, well, it wasn't authorised, but it wasn't unauthorised. <laughs> oh, God. So, and so what I'm saying to you is you asked the question about what I learned about him. Well, in the process of that time, you learn about the man. He didn't puff his chest out and said, I'm an honest Joe and I'm principled. He just showed it, you know, yeah. apartheid, not being able to be bought right down to the pedantry over what you put on the front of the book. Did you ever get from him? I mean, I, like thousands of other Australians, have a letter from Sir Don Bradman uh, yes. knocking me back for an interview that I requested in my radio days in the early 1980s. Um, yes. Why did he do that? Why did, why, I mean, it would have been quite simple for him just to have ignored me and not bothered, but he, he seemed to have this... Uh, uh, attention to detail with stuff like that and the connection with the sort of respecting me enough to at least send me a letter back. And I was, as I say, one of thousands who got letters back from him. Yeah, yeah, D, he just said, I don't want the interview or I'm Pretty too much. tired or don't like, what did he yeah, say? At, at, this, at this particular stage, I'm uh, I'm not doing any interviews. Right, well, look, don't forget, he, he'd given a lot of a lot it. Was out. Around the, Every, it was around the yeah. body, body Line television series that had come out. Oh, right, well, I, I have a bit of a burst on that in the book. But look, it's a good question because he he just had a gut full of being interviewed in the media and the mis um, you know the misappropriation of him you know many ways. I mean, he, you know, he told me that story about the Indian who'd written the one page article yeah. <laughs> on an interview that didn't exist. Yeah. Uh, and I don't think it was that was the an example. It would have been a lot like that. I just think he'd had enough, and he was in retirement. Now I was fortunate, and there'd been fifty-seven. Can you imagine that? I mean. Probably Hitler and Churchill had a few more, but 57 books on him before I got to him. But no one had ever done a biography. No one had ever actually interviewed the man for a proper biography when I first met him. Now, I got there not by... um, uh, uh, Well, I I wasn't that smart. I just wanted to know, and I had a couple of mates uh, I consulted, and they said, oh, so-and-so's been doing business with him over business cards, over sorry, over cards or cricket cards or something. Uh, nothing to do, it was to do with the Brabham Museum. And the deal was you offered royalties to the museum, of which he gets not a cent and the family gets nothing, all charities. And if you want, like, you can earmark the charity or the particular cricket charity. In other words, I was keen to get um, some of the, the, because I love Australian rules football, I was very keen to get the young Aboriginal cricketers playing up in the north. And so I donated the rule. I said, my rule is will go too. And I wrote that when, that, when that happened, when the actual book happened, that happened. So it was pleasing. Now, Bradman couldn't be bought. So the wrong move was to offer money, which the publishers wouldn't have done. Yep. Uh, but uh, the royalties worked. The royalty argument worked. So you kept it. You didn't have a fiduciary link to him. You just um, you just had that openness. So on the big issue, look, I got him at the right time, uh, Kevin. In this regard, he was not eighty six, um, and he obviously was wanting. You know, deep down, he wanted to spill a bit. I think here yeah, and there, yeah. and and it was just the timing was lucky. I mean, he he had a stroke. And I hope it had nothing to do with my my interviewing, but he had a stroke just after. The book was completed, and then he didn't do anything at all with the media. And uh, it was just one. Of, I'd also read one of my books, The Fifth Man, which is not a cricket book for anyone out there. It's a book on the Cambridge Ring of Spies. And that influenced him because he didn't really want another cricket writer. Yep. 
coming at him. He wa- and and he thought, well, he's an author; he'll have a different approach, which which has turned out to be the only way to do it. No, you should be uh, very happy with this one. Tea and Scotch with Bradman. Uh, lovely read and uh, well done again. Are you, are you currently working on another one or have you, have you got the fingers off the keyboard for five minutes? Or <laughs> Well, I have during the media stuff for this book, uh, Tea and Scotch with Bradman, but no, I've got another one which is done and dusted and uh, contracted and that'll be out this time next year. And I can't talk about it just at the moment. Well, you can when when it comes out. We'll we'll get you. Oh back. yeah, definitely. That'll be in a year. Yeah, yeah. it's not going to be next week. We'll get you back. A... We'll get you back into the uh, into the late I'll show. I enjoy that. Again. You'll get a laugh. You'll get a very big laugh. It's a. It happens to be a book on um, uh, another area of my interest, and that's war. But it's it's oh. something very, very, very different. You will, you will. You'll say, I don't believe it when you see it. All right. No, good. Look forward to it. Hey, Roland, thanks so thanks. much for your time. Appreciate Kevin. it and, uh, and have enjoyed your work over many, many years now and uh, keep it going for many, many more. I appreciate the interviews with you and they're always, uh, always relaxed. I love it. Thank you.